This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So today went a little bit different than I was planning, which happens. It happens more often than I would like for it to. Um, It's been a kind of a busy weekend for me. And so, you know, sometimes I like to record podcasts on Saturday or Sunday if I get a chance. And that way, you know, Mondays can be kind of a wild card. And so if I can get it done over the weekend, then, you know, Monday's not quite as much of a wild card. But this weekend was busy. Mark Nepo was in town, interviewed him earlier this year for the event that happened this last weekend. And he was in town and spoke Friday night and then did a workshop on Saturday. Phenomenal. I'm going to have to talk a little bit about that and uh, record a different podcast about the learnings that I gained from Mark. And as a little bit of a side note or a side bonus for me this past weekend, I was asked if I would be available and would willing to be a volunteer, which I was happy to do, to kind of chauffeur Mark around and pick him up at his hotel and get him to the Saturday event. Or, you know, there was a meet and greet on Friday, taken from the meet and greet to the place that he was going to be talking Friday evening. And so, you know, got to spend a little bit of time with Mark in the Tesla. It was his first time in a Tesla. So I get the bragging rights of being the first person that, you know, Mark rode in a Tesla with. And I also have a history, you know, of getting lost. So my staff was giving me, you know, some hard time in our staff meeting about the fact that I was in charge of getting Mark where he needed to go. And I don't really have the best relationship with directions. And so, we, you know, we were talking in staff meeting and Adam, one of my staff had said, well, I gave Jackie directions. And two other staff members were like, yeah, you haven't been with Jackie long enough to realize that giving her directions does not mean she won't get lost. But I'm happy to report all went as planned. I did not get lost. Mark arrived before the event started in enough time that he could kind of prep and do what he needed to so that it was smooth and he could come out and everything was fine. So that was the good news and got to spend some time with Mark in the Tesla. So that was fun. So my intention today was to get two podcasts recorded. You know, when you're busy on Friday, you're busy on Saturday, you kind of have to spend Sunday getting ready for the week that's coming up. And I got a busy week coming up. And so, you know, Sunday, I didn't get a podcast recorded at all. And my intention was today to get two recorded because I had something else I wanted to say about the last two chapters in the book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, as well as getting into the next two chapters, chapters five and six. And had a small window this afternoon. My Monday looked a little bit different this week than it typically does. So I just had a small window in which to record the two podcast episodes that I was gonna do today and didn't get that done. And then, you know, I kind of thought maybe this evening I can get back to it. Well, what I had to go do took longer, and so I'm actually getting back later, and I'm just not going to get two of them done today. But that's okay. I'm still planning. We'll see how it goes this week. Still planning to get another one recorded this week, and so you'll either get two this week, 
or to next week, depending on you know when they can get produced and when they can get released and everything like that. So you'll get some bonus episode in there either this week or next week. So last week we were talking about the Tao in the Tao of fully feeling. We were talking about um, the dynamic nature of emotions. So I had some good discussions after I recorded that podcast, which tends to happen for me, you know, kind of as I read things and then have an opportunity to kind of talk about or digest what it was I was reading, right? Then I can have some good conversations. And so I had some conversations with my husband this weekend. He came to the two Mark Meepo events with me. He also was in the Tesla with Mark and he may have been part of why getting to where we needed to go happened so smoothly. Although I think I could have done it myself too. He is much better at directions than I am. And so, you know, he and I had some good conversations about what I've been reading and what I've been thinking about in the Tao of Fully Feeling uh, this weekend. And so, you know, just as we were talking about, you know, holism, polarity, ambivalence, and flow, those were the dynamic natures of emotions. And, you know, it made me think, I've seen a couple of news articles locally, although it's not just something that's happening in my state here in Utah. But I've been seeing this, you know, starting last year, maybe, I think, I think is the first time I started kind of seeing some resurgence. It's not like it's a new thing, a brand new phenomena that's taking place. But I've been, you know, reading some articles and kind of just keeping an eye on some things and watching some things unfold. And then, you know, I started thinking about it a little bit through a different lens after reading chapter three. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on currently with kind of these parent groups pushing back or wanting certain books banned or removed from school libraries and put, you know, in a place where, you know, some, some parent groups are wanting the banned. Some parent groups are saying they don't have to be banned, but they need to be off the shelves so that if students want them, they have to ask for them and they have to get permission to get them. So, you know, I was listening to a professor that teaches at a university here in Utah, one of my alma maters where I got my bachelor's degree. He teaches at Weber State University. Outside of Utah, it is commonly referred to as Weber State University, although here it is most definitely pronounced Weber State University. And he's a professor of political science and he studies censorship and book banning in schools. And so I was listening to him in an interview and he was talking about, um, you know, that it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint, this is, his name is Professor Richard Price. It's a little difficult to pinpoint where a wave of agitation begins. But he says, you know, there was a video from September of 2021 at a school board meeting in Leander, Texas, where there was a parent present who was really upset about what she thought was graphic content of a book in, that was in a school library. And, you know, as it is in today's world, it gets passed along, it gets shared. And by October of 2021, so just about a month later, it had gone viral. And eventually it made its way to a parent who has kids here in Salt Lake County, the Canyon School District. Now, that's not a district that my kids went to school in, but it's a school district that's part of Salt Lake County. Salt Lake County has a couple of school districts within the county itself. And I was reading a story where there was a librarian at one of these high schools. It's called Brighton High School that's in Canyon School District. 
here in Salt Lake County. And the librarian was talking about how on a Friday afternoon, she got a call from the principal saying, there are some books we need to remove from our school shelves. And her initial response was, what about the policy? And the principal kind of paused and said, well, what does the policy say? And so she knew, right, that it said, if someone has an issue with a book, there's a process. And it's a detailed, outlined, already thought out process where you have to go through and that during this process, the books stay on the shelf. And his response was, well, let me talk to some people and I'll get back to you. And, you know, she talks about in this interview how she says, I love my job. I love being a librarian. I'm passionate about being a librarian. And I believe that my job is important. And she says, you know, I get the call back from the principal and he says, we're going to have to take the books off the shelves. Now, in the meantime, you know, I, I think he called her on a Friday. And if I remember correctly, he got back to her maybe on a Tuesday. And so in between that time, she had gone and looked at the books that were on this list, the books that were in question. She said, I was familiar with some of the books, had read some of the books, but was not familiar with all of the books. And she says, as I started looking through the books and reviewing the ones and familiarizing myself with the ones that I was not familiar with, she said, it was apparent to me that the books on the list were chosen due to sexual orientation or racial content that was in the books. And she says, you know, at, I found myself thinking, okay, so I call myself a librarian. And like I said, I tell people I love my job and I'm passionate and I tell people my job is important to me. And she says, I, I was kind of having this moral dilemma with myself thinking I can't in good conscience keep saying these things or know that I've said these things and remove these books. So, like I said, the principal calls the next week and says, yep, got to take the book off the shelves. And he says, this isn't me saying this. This is the superintendent saying this. And he says, I also need to let you know that if you aren't willing to do it, somebody else is going to do it. But the books are going to be removed from the shelves. You know, so she was kind of put in this, this dilemma, this place of ambivalence, probably some pretty... Uh, strong cognitive dissonance happening within her where, you know, she says, I knew that if I were taking the books off the shelves, that I would not be acting in alignment with my values. But I also knew that if I didn't take the books off the shelves, somebody else, maybe somebody who was not a librarian, somebody who did not feel passionate about their job the way I felt passionate about my job, Somebody else would be coming in and doing this job. Now, that's a difficult decision to be placed in. There's a lot of different emotions coming up, right? And she spoke later at a school district meeting and said this, which I thought was a great quote. She said, a community cannot be reduced to a single set of values. It has a responsibility to provide words, stories, and information to everyone. She said, often librarians have certain sayings, as most careers, most jobs do, right? She says, it's not uncommon to hear librarians talk about how there needs to be a book for every kid and that books are mirrors 
or windows or sliding glass doors in which kids can see themselves in the books that they are reading. Ultimately, she decided that it was her job. She was the librarian. And if she was told by her superintendent that the books needed to be removed, that she would be the one who would be removing the books. And she said, this experience has shaped me as a librarian. She says, I think as librarians, we need to be prepared for this. And when she was asked what she thought the future held, she said, which I just love, she said, well, I know librarians. And so I think in the end, it's going to be okay. Which I just love. I don't really know librarians. I have a sister-in-law that's a librarian and I don't see her very often. And so we haven't had the chance to talk about all of this. But I love that idea. Well, I know librarians. And so I know it's going to end okay. But she talked about, you know, these parent groups that are forming and raising controversy around certain books. And she says, I, you know, I, I hope that what happens is that parents will realize that the librarians have good intentions and that some of maybe the suspiciousness about the librarians or about libraries is maybe a little out of proportion and that librarians have the best interest of not just their students, but of each and every student in mind when they're collecting books for the library. And she said, you know, for me, this process has made me more intentional. I pay attention closer to what I say to students that I interact with or those that I talk to in my personal life. And she said that the quality and development of her library has increased as she's kind of had to sit and think about and face some things that maybe she hadn't for a while or maybe hadn't ever. I don't know if she had had this experience before. Book banning certainly isn't new. So I don't know if that's something she had faced or this was the first time she was facing this. But it required her to think and to reflect and not just reflect about what was being said about these books or, or some of the inflammatory statements about these books, but to actually think about what she does and who she says she is and who she says she has been, right? And what is important to her. And I, I love that interview as I listened to her talk about this experience. And I thought, you know, this is somebody who I don't know her personally. I don't have students who attend Brighton High School or have ever attended Brighton High School. But I'm grateful for people like her who seem to be able to sit with and think through the complexities of the feelings instead of just grabbing onto or pushing away or pushing down something that makes them uncomfortable. Instead, standing and feeling everything that she must have felt from Friday to Tuesday and since then. And to be able to find in all of those feelings where she is and what she feels are her values and what's in alignment with her authentic self and with the core of who she is. Because I think sometimes in the midst of all of these feelings and the dynamic nature of feelings, we can forget to run that through our core self. And oftentimes that's, I think, when we get into trouble. So I wanted to talk about this just because it's been a story I've been watching and kind of looking at since last year. But then also, um, you know, there's 
the the Utah state legislature is in session. I think this is their last week, their third and final week of the state legislature. And so, you know, I'm just paying attention to things on the Hill and different bills proposed. And of course, you know, some of the parent groups currently have some bills on the Hill that they're watching closely, some that they agree with, some that they don't agree with. And so as I was watching this and having done that last podcast episode, I thought, oh no, this is a great example of it coming to fruition right now in a current issue, right? And we can see all of the different levels of the dynamic nature of emotions in this example. Now there's also a local parent organization that has started called Parents United, and it started in the county north of Salt Lake County. It's actually the county I moved from. I moved from Davis County to Salt Lake County. So this parent organization got started in Davis County but it, it hasn't just stayed in Davis County. I would say now they probably have participation statewide and maybe even larger than statewide, although they're active on state issues is most of their mission. In fact, if you look up their website, Utah Parents United, protecting our right to parent, you know, they want parents to stay up to what is happening with parental rights in Utah. And so I, again, I think it's something to talk about because I think we're going to see some of what we're learning about in the book of the Tao of Fully Feeling, we're gonna see that and how it starts to splinter and show up in, in other ways or how feelings that get repressed actually start coming out sideways, which I think, I'll just say this right now, my opinion is these fears around the books are emotions. I'm not saying they're not real emotions or even valid emotions. I think they're coming out sideways. And so I think this is a good example for us to kind of look at as this is becoming a, a growing, trending issue. Now, I also listened to an interview that was done by the head of this Utah Parents United parent organization. She seemed pretty quick to specify that they're an advocacy group, they're not an activist group. And, you know, the interview that I listened to, yeah, I found myself, you know, it was a audio. I was not, it wasn't a video, but the one that I was listening to, there might be video ones out there. I haven't had the time to look at that, but it was just an audio one. And from my take, it could be different from my take. I don't know that she felt like the interview went well. I don't know that the interviewer felt like the interview went well. And as a listener, I didn't think the interview went well, but maybe that was just me. Maybe she thought that it was fine. I don't think that the interviewer thought it was fine, but as a listener, and again, I bring my biases to the conversation that I'm listening to. But as a listener, I didn't think that it went that well. And I don't know that she really could articulate what it was that she was trying to articulate. So like I said, she, you know, she was pretty quick to point out that they're an advocacy group, not an activist group. They do have a list of books that they want. Um, she, was, you know, she does not want them bound, but she does want them you know, put in a separate place. They're not out on the library shelves where any student could just pick one up and check it out. And so they have a list of those books. Um, and, you know, she was talking about them and, you know, she read an excerpt or two. I've heard, you know, I've, I've seen video of some people on the Hill currently because the state legislature is in talking about these books and how parents need to have a right to have a say in what is accessible to their children in the schools. And, you know, so she was reading this part of the book and, I don't know if you've read, like this particular book was uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. 
And I read this book several years ago. Like, I mean, not several. Several would be two or three. It was definitely more than that. And it was a particular scene where she had been sexually assaulted by her father and was left laying on the bathroom floor. And the head of this Parent United organization was saying, we can't have that. That's going to be psychologically damaging to students if they come across that. And she said, you know, if, if a student checks out that book and, they, and that, they've had that experience happen to them, they are going to be triggered. It's going to create, I think she said, like psychological and emotional damage to the student. And, you know, that just shouldn't be happening. Likewise, if a student had not had that experience and they checked out this book and were reading this book and they came across this passage, again, it would be extremely upsetting. It would trigger them. It would cause psychological and emotional damage to them. And that, you know, we need to be advocating for the safety of our children's psychological and emotional well-being, which I'm, I'm all for doing that. I am all for doing that. I just don't know that this is the way we go about this, right? And I think this is where the polarity starts to come on board. Now, if you remember from last week's episode, Pete Walker talks about that polarity is that emotions happen on a continuum, right? And so there's a gradient in terms of the intensity that we feel emotions. And he also acknowledges in the book that there can be multiple continuums of emotions happening at the same time, right? This kind of takes us into ambivalence where they don't all line up or kind of move in tandem together, right? They might feel like competing where I love this person and I hate this person, or I love this person and they're not safe for me. I think sometimes though too, I don't know that he talks about this in this book, but when I was reading about polarity and I was thinking about, you know, cause he wrote the Tao of Fully Feeling years ago. Um, let's see. I can look at the copyright. I have it right here. 1995. That's a long time ago. I graduated with my master's degree in 1995. So for me, that's a career ago, right? So he was not writing this book thinking of 2021, 2022 in his mind at that time. And so as I'm reading it and I'm thinking of 2021 and 2022 and even the past, you know, six years that we've lived through, and what we're facing currently with the unrest and not unrest just in our country, but unrest in the world. You know, I, I was thinking about how sometimes too, I think with polarity, if we start to have an emotion that takes us down a certain continuum that we're not comfortable with, right? So let's take those two competing emotions, love and hate, or maybe like I love somebody who is also abusive to me. That can be really difficult to reconcile. Right? So let's say that I repress, they're abusive to me. I just repress that. I won't look at that. And I only start to focus on, I love this person. And that starts me bypassing anything uncomfortable, anything negative, anything. I just have to keep peeling that off, putting it aside, peeling it off, putting it aside as though it's not true, as though it's not part of my reality. And in some ways, I think we will start down this road where this is a person who loves me, but also abuses me. And instead I go take a right turn and go the other extreme. And I will only sit at that extreme. I only go to that extreme and sit. I was also 
reading an article last week that talked about, it was talking about the practice of mindfulness, actually. And they stated in there that's estimated about 50% of the time people are not present and paying attention to what they're doing. That's a lot, right? I'm like, well, that's one minute I am, one minute I'm not. Five minutes I am, five minutes I'm not. Again, it may not happen exactly like that, but 50%, 50% of the time people are actually not present and focused on what they're doing. And it talked about how, you know, that lack of being present sets us up to go to more extremes. And again, I'm, you know, I'm reading this, but I'm also reading the Tao of Fully Feeling and I'm thinking, ah, polarity, right? So it sets us up to go to the extremes. We're not staying in the gray zone, right? We're not staying balanced. We're going further out to the extremes instead of kind of working through the messiness of the middle. And, and at the extremes, it's either or, right? Either it's good or it's bad. Instead of staying in the middle where the lines are blurred, right? And it's a little messier and it's gray and it's not as clear and it might create some confusion for us. And so I, I think a lot of times as I'm now watching this issue on books and what books are on the school shelves, I'm starting to look at that a little bit differently through this lens, reading the Tao of Fully Feeling and thinking about, okay, are we staying in the middle, right? Because the reality is, I don't know that this book talking about this sexual assault is what's damaging. I think what's damaging is the reality or the truth that this happens. This happens to people we go to school with. This happens with our neighbors. This happens with family members, right? This isn't something that some author made up for this book. This author is not talking about something that's fantastical or so unbelievably imaginative, right? This is life. This is life for a lot of people. If we believe, if we believe some of the stats, right? This is one in three females who are sexually abused. You know, the stats on males, I think for various reasons are a little bit harder to get. Depending on the gender of the perpetrator, males may not always recognize it as abuse. Depending on their age, they may not recognize it as abuse. So, you know, some of the stats that I see put it at one in five, maybe one in seven males. But I also think, you know, and, and I'm not the only one that speculates this. There's people who are gathering the research who also speculate that it's pretty much about the same for boys as it is for girls. And that we're looking at one in three. So when I was a new college student, you know, I was 19, 20, first or second year of college. I don't remember which one. I took a, I took a class and I think it was in that, I want to say it was in the sociology department and it was like theater and sociology. And I'm like, oh, sounds like a good class, needs a credit, sure, sign me up. And so in this class, we watched a lot of movies. Hence the theater part, right? Or film or something like that. I think it was theater, not film. But we watched a lot of movies. Movies I hadn't really seen, probably would never have seen if it weren't for this class. And then we talked about societal messages and group messages and different things in the movies, right? So it was kind of an interesting take on life. And I remember it, it was kind of interesting learning about it that, at that time in my life. And I remember the professor we had watched the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar. 
And at that time, I mean, I had heard that title of the movie. I knew that movie. I knew it was controversial. I knew, you know, that it was kind of considered a bad movie. And so we watched that movie. And then we watched this other movie. I can't even remember the name of the movie, actually. But it was a movie that took place in, I think, during World War II, if I remember correctly. And it was kind of a lovely movie. A lot of, like, you kind of forgot that it's taking place in the war because... The war was kind of secondary to this story, as if World War II could be secondary to a story taking place in Europe. But it was kind of secondary, right? Out in the countryside. I don't even remember what country it was in. And, you know, it's, it's a woman and it's kind of this illicit affair that her and this guy carry on. But, you know, at the, at the end, we watched these two movies, right? And then we would have a discussion. So basically kind of like, we're going to watch this movie, we're going to watch this movie, they're somewhat related, right? The theme is somewhat related, and then we're going to talk about it. And in this particular theme, right, I don't remember exactly what the teacher said, but my takeaway, again, I'm 19 or 20, right, was how it approached sex, right? And he talked about looking for Mr. Goodbar, and he talked about how controversial it was and how much bad press it was getting, right? But he was like, how many of you, after watching that film, think, Wow, that's a great lifestyle. I want to lead that great lifestyle. That looks fun and exciting, right? I don't know if you've seen the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar. That is not at all how that movie leaves you feeling, right? That movie kind of leaves you feeling empty and depressed. It's kind of a dark movie. Not necessarily dark, but like, like meaning like it's taking place in bars, right? So the lighting's somewhat dark versus this beautiful European countryside, light and flowers and green hills, right? And so he's like, which of these two movies do you think has a more healthy message about sexuality? Well, this other one, right? I, I don't exactly even remember the movie, but you find yourself rooting for this affair to happen, right? She's married, her husband's a good guy. You like him, right? He, he, he just not a lot of character development about this guy. And so you're kind of rooting for this affair to happen, right? And he's like, this one, you're like, yeah, yeah, get together with this guy, have an affair, cheat on your husband. And this other one, that's not the feeling you get, right? And he's like, which one is, actually has more damage to our society when we look at these two movies? So, you know, we looked at a lot of different movies that way and kind of looking at impact on society. What's the messaging? What's the takeaway? How is the message portrayed? And he was right, you know, looking for Mr. Goodbar definitely was getting much more press coverage, but it was press coverage because people thought it was such a bad show and like it was going to do so much damage on our culture and on our society. When in fact, I don't know that anybody watching that movie is like, hey, sign me up. That's a great life that I want to live. I just don't think that that would happen. So again, going back to this discussion about the bluest eye, and Toni Morrison, listening to this interview, you know, kind of made me a little upset because I thought, well, you're twisting, you're twisting things. Does sexual assault psychologically harm kids? Absolutely. But reading about sexual assault in a book does not create the same harm, right? And I'm imagining clients reading that book and maybe they're 15, maybe they're in high school, right? Again, this is not the book on the shelf of an elementary school, K through six or something. This is on the shelf of a high school library. And maybe they're reading this book 
and they've never spoken about this before and maybe they never speak about it for years. But all of a sudden they're like, hey, this happened to somebody else. And in this book, it wasn't okay for them either. And on some level, it doesn't normalize it in an unhealthy way, right? But maybe it removes some shame that they feel because it's being spoken to and it's being spoken in a way that kind of leaves your stomach going like, that's not good. We should not be doing that in our culture. And you also don't read that passage in that book and think, well, what did that little girl do to deserve that? That's not at all how it comes across, right? You clearly know that the fault was lies with the assailant, not on the victim. And we get that backwards in our society a lot of times. But in that book, it's pretty clear who's at fault and who is the victim. So I don't know that that actually is going to do psychological harm. I also thought, okay, let's say, you know, that somebody's reading that and that hasn't been their experience. They, they haven't had that happen to them. Well, again, I don't know that reading about it in a book is what does the damage, right? I've raised four daughters to adulthood or young adulthood, let's say. And they know, they know that this exists in their world and we have conversations about it. Now, as far as I know, it has not personally happened to them, but it has personally happened to people that they know and it has personally happened to people who have shared it with them. And even having a friend share it with them and then them coming and talking to me, I don't know that that did psychological harm to them. I think living it in a culture where that's somewhat acceptable or that rapists get off with three years or a couple months sentence so that we don't, you know, ruin their life or their swimming careers. That does a lot of psychological damage to them. Knowing that maybe they'll be blamed for what happened when they didn't do anything to warrant this. I think that does psychological damage. I don't think reading about it in a book, especially in a book where it's clearly laid out who's at fault and who is not. And it's also speaking to something that actually exists in our society. I don't think the book is the thing that's doing the damage or causing the psychological or emotional harm. Now, of course, you know, the spokesperson for this group, Utah Parents United, says that, you know, their efforts at removing these books from libraries at various schools has nothing to do with race or sexual orientation. She said, they're just interested in enforcing Utah code when it comes to the content of books on library shelves. Now, I think it's also interesting, and I, I have to note this, again, I did say that we as a family moved from Davis County to Salt Lake County. And in, I think it was in 2021, there was a two-year investigation that was wrapped up. And this investigation was conducted by the Department of Justice and the United States Attorney's Office. And they had concluded that the Davis County School District, well, let me, let me back up for a minute. The investigation focused from the school years 2015 to 2020. And you know, the, the reports at the time after this, or after this investigation wrapped up and the results were being released, and released to the school district, you know, many of the news articles, right, were talking about how Davis County was one of the most racist or discriminatory 
school districts in the nation. And so, like I said, it focused on the years from 2015 to 2020, and it found hundreds of documented uses of the N-word, multiple racial epithets, derogatory racial comments, physical assaults targeting students at dozens of schools. And it revealed that there were persistent failures by district staff and students to respond to reports of race-based harassment of Black and Asian American students. The Justice Department also found that Davis School District disciplined Black students more harshly than their white peers for same type of behavior, and that Black students were denied the ability to form student groups while supporting similar requests made by white students. And so the Department of Justice concluded that Davis School District's ineffective response left students vulnerable to continued harassment and that students believed the district condoned the behavior. Now, I will say in the years that my kids were attending schools in Davis County, again, I have white kids. They encountered this. They had friends of color who they would come home very upset about an incident that had happened or that the student had been expelled and it was a, you know, they, they felt it was an injustice. And I would say it was an injustice. This student was expelled, but this white student who initiated it, nothing happened. And it's putting this other kid's, you know, potential sports scholarship at risk because now he's getting expelled. And I mean, there were, there were some issues, you know, and, and my kids knew about those issues and they were going to those schools. They were going to those junior highs. They were going to those high schools. They knew some of that. So, you know, some people in Utah were uh, shocked maybe by this report that came out. A lot of people denied that that was an issue. Now, I, I mean, to me, it lined up with what I knew from my kids attending these schools and from some of the stories I heard from some of the friends that my kids had. So going back to Richard Price, the professor at Weber State University who studies censorship. Well, he says, in fact, Utah Code does not prohibit any of the books that Parents United are concerned about and that Utah Code is consistent with the First Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court now for 50 plus years and that none of these books on the list are actually legally obscene or meet the legal definition of obscenity, which has been established by the Supreme Court in a case called California versus Miller in 1973. So this case, this precedent requires three things. And it says that all three things have to be shown in the work as a whole in order to be considered, you know, controversial or that it's an issue and these books can be banned. So first it has to, you know, uh, appeal to this, just kind of this basic interest of sex. And it has to have kind of this unhealthy representation, maybe, of sex that's patently offensive to the prevailing standards and that has a lack of a serious literary, scientific, artistic, political, or scientific value. And then last, or most importantly, or not most importantly, the work has to be interpreted as a whole. So you can't take out like many of these uh, parents are doing at school board meetings or you know just on social media. You can't take out a context of this book and read it and say, this is graphic, therefore the book is bad, right? And this book needs to be removed. You have to take it as a whole. What is this book about? And why is this graphic part in here? And if as a whole it's speaking to sexual abuse or sexual violence, then 
there's going to be some graphicness in there in order to speak to that, right? Um, one of the books I know, the librarian that in the interview, there was a book on the list that talked about stories about trans kids. So again, in the book about stories about trans kids, there will be stories about trans kids and their experience and their involvement and their awareness and insight and all of that type of stuff, right? And that was, that was on the list of books that needed to be banned because it's controversial. You know, so many of these parents are looking at this, these certain contexts and saying, this is obscene, right? Or this is pornographic. Now, I, I work with pornography addiction, right? I work with sex addiction. I work with problematic sexual behavior. I don't think that sex itself is pornographic. I don't think that having rigid beliefs around sexuality is actually helpful or decreases incidence of pornography addiction or sex addiction. And so just saying, you know, hey, this is obscene because it's sexually graphic. Well, being sexually graphic doesn't automatically mean that something's obscene or that it's por pornographic. And we can't say that because this paragraph or this these couple of pages are dirty, that the entire book is obscene because what the Supreme Court is saying is that's actually unconstitutional. And this goes back quite a ways in constitutional law because it used to be that there was a basis to prosecute booksellers for selling quote unquote obscene material even if that book had a single reference to sex outside of marriage. That was the only reference in the book that could be considered obscene because it was sex outside of marriage. And we don't do that anymore. And there's clear reason for that. Although there have been some of these parent groups who are wanting to, to sue people, right? Or to uh, prosecute people for these books, whether it's authors, whether it's booksellers, for having these books available, which again would go back to a precedent that the Supreme Court has established and in 50 plus years have not chosen to change, even though that has been, you know, brought up. I don't know that it's ever made it to the Supreme Court, but in lower cases or in lower courts, it's been decided that no, we're not, we're not changing the precedent that is in place. Again, I don't know that in this current day and age that makes anything safe, but that's how it's been for 50 plus years. And so again, we're, you know, this interest in sex or, you know, books having sexual material in it doesn't itself make it unhealthy. Um, you know, some of the arguments that parents are saying, hey, we don't need to take this action and let's like, what about my child? I'm okay with these books being in the libraries, right? We are going to need parents on the other side to say, no, this is not an issue. I want my school board or my school district to look at and, and decide. You know, we have books like Shakespeare. Well, there's sexuality in Shakespeare. There's books like Hemingway. Those books have not been removed and they have sex within their books, right? But they're considered classic. So, okay, but if they're classic, if we're saying across the board, we're removing books with sexual content, which I don't think we should do, and nor are they proposing this. This particular group is saying, actually this particular group is saying across the board, across the board. If it has sexual material, it needs to go and parents need to give permission for students to, to check those books out. Now, she was also making the argument and saying, you know, the best place 
for these conversations to be had is not in classrooms. Again, these aren't necessarily books that teachers are assigning and then discussing as a class. She's saying they're not, you know, conversations I want my kids having with friends or even my kids having just as they're reading the book and kind of dialoguing as they're reading the book, right? These conversations happen and should happen in the family. And the family is the best place to be handling these types of conversations. Now, on the one hand, I agree with what she's saying. On the other hand, I work with a lot of people who do not come from those families. And, you know, I mean, I've raised four kids. I don't know how it comes up, like, to just say, hey, today I thought, since we have this time in the car, we're going to talk about sexual assault. And what happens if that's done by a family member, right? Like, how, how do families bring about that conversation? I know for me, as a parent, you know, I, I've watched a lot of news. The news has been on around my kids. It was part of our discussion, right? If there was... I mean, my kids were young when Michael Jackson was being prosecuted and accused of sexually abusing young boys. That was on the news. My kids were hearing that because I had the news on in my house, right? And so at the dinner table, we discussed what that was. And I found that, you know, just by what was happening in the world, it provided ample opportunity for me to bring up most things that I wanted to as a parent with my kids. Talk about the importance of walking to school with somebody not by yourself. Talking about the importance of letting me know where you're going if you move from this friend's to this house because, you know, this parent lost their kid and that was part of what happened. Again, we talked about, you know, I remember talking to my brother who did not have kids at the time of Michael Jackson and I think he was at my house and one of my kids made a mention of Michael Jackson and the case, right? And my brother was like, are you talking to your kids about that? And I was like, yeah, I mean, they're hearing it on TV. They're, it, it's part of the world, right? They're going to hear about it. And he was just like, do they know what sexual abuse is? And I was like, well, I mean, they do now. Like, yes, we've had that conversation. And he was like, well, do they know what sex is? And I was like, I mean, not really. We're not to that place yet. But we have had conversations about sexual abuse, right? And eventually I'll give them the other side of that, which is just to talk about sex and what sex is. And so again, sometimes... You know, there's these parents who want to make a big deal about isolated passages or saying this shouldn't be something that books are teaching my kids. Well, I think if books are teaching your kids those things, then you're not taking an opportunity to talk to your kids about those things. You know, and she was saying, you know, I, I don't want my kids reading these books and I have no idea what's in those books. And I, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I'm driving in my car listening to this interview and I'm thinking to myself, well... Do you know how many books I read only because my kids were reading them? Like the whole freaking Twilight series, right? Because my kids were tweens and, and middle schoolers when those books came out, my oldest two. I read every book, right? Because that's what my kids were reading and that's what their friends were reading. So I read those books. Now my first thought is she needed a better editor because there's a lot of like typos and just editing mistakes that should have been cleared up. My second thought, right, and again, I, I didn't go in lecturing my kids, but I would say to them, like, tell me what you think about Bella. And, you know, in the second book, you know, my second daughter was kind of like, it's kind of a boring book. I'm like, tell me about this book. What are you thinking about this book? Well, it's kind of a boring book. Oh, yeah, why do you think it's a boring book? Well, she's just sad because Edward's not there. 
Like, that's the whole book. I'm like, yeah, it is kind of the whole book. Like, you're kind of like, Bella, get a life. And she's like, yeah, get a life. Like, go do something. You know, my oldest daughter was there for that conversation. We had conversations about, it's kind of weird to have somebody just sit and watch you sleep the whole time. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I probably wouldn't let a boy just come in your room and sit and watch you sleep because, you know, he's a vampire and doesn't sleep. Yeah, that would be weird. I don't think I'd like having somebody watch me sleep. I don't know if I could sleep having somebody watch me sleep, right? It, it was, I, I didn't necessarily have to have a PowerPoint discussion. I did have some PowerPoints with my kids, but I didn't need to have this lecture or this whole downloading of my values and this is right and this is wrong. And this book needs to go, right? They could read the book. I could read the book. I'd ask them questions. I was relieved. I was relieved that they were like, yeah, Bella's kind of boring. She needs to get a life. Life does not revolve around your boyfriend. I was like, yes, thank you. Please remember this going forward. But we had some really good discussions about books that they were reading because I was reading those same books. And yeah, there was some tough material in some of those books. And we talked about it. And I would say, hey, have you gotten to this part of the book yet? Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, wow, that was really hard to read. Yeah, that is kind of scary. Yep, that's a scary world we live in, right? We could have those kinds of conversations, but if I'm afraid as a parent, or if I've repressed all of this fear because of other things in my childhood that I haven't been able to face, situations in my family of origin that I've just had to keep bypassing and keep bypassing, so it is coming out sideways, those conversations are never going to happen. And I'm actually never going to be able to feel like, as a parent, my kids have a pretty good head on their shoulders. How do I know? Because I'm asking them what they think. So again, I agree. Those conversations are best to be had in the family, right? I remember when my kids had their maturation program, right? And there's all this buzz about, oh, maturation programs coming up. and Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous, right? And I could say to each one of my kids, there is nothing you're going to learn that you don't already know. In fact, most of what you're going to learn, you know so much more than that because at that point they knew what sex was. We had had conversations about that, right? I said, you're going to learn about your body changing and hair growing and needing to wear deodorant and you're going to learn about periods. That's what you're going to learn. And they're like, oh, that's all? Yeah, that's all that you're going to learn. Like, you know way more than that. They were like, yeah, I, I know a lot more than that. Yeah, not a big deal, right? Because I've already gone there with my kids. And I have an open relationship with them where they can come, they can talk to me. You know, sometimes as they got older, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. That's not something I experienced or that's not something I did, right? Because this is kind of the life that I was living and I had a lot of fear in my life. So I would never have done this. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. I'm saying I don't have experience there. So let's keep talking about it. Why don't you keep me in the loop? If you have questions, let's talk it through. Not that I have the answer, not that I even have that experience, but let's talk about it, right? And so again, I think, yes, it comes on us as parents, but when I'm watching these book bands, I'm thinking to myself, what's happening with these parents, right? Because actually, you know, when it comes to parental rights, there is not a constitutional 
amendment or it's not written into the constitution, right? That parents have rights to determine curriculum. Now, I know that's kind of shocking because right now we have all sorts of parents who think that they get to determine curricula. And some schools, superintendents, principals, they're letting that happen, right? I get it. There's backlash. We saw that in 2020 when schools started requiring to go distance learning or wearing masks in the school rooms, in the classrooms, right? Parents got so upset and districts completely changed some of their policies because of parents. Well, I'm not okay with that as a parent. I don't want parents dictating policy because I think on the other hand, right, that's a problem too. Now, if you go to their website, right, there's a bill right now in the Utah legislature. I don't think it's going to pass. It probably has been voted on by the time of this recording and I just haven't looked it up where it's looking at do 16 and 17 year olds have a right to vote in school board elections? Well, of course, their answer to that is no way. You can't trust a high schooler to vote and make a decision. And that would be inappropriate to have high schoolers involved in making those decisions. Well, I don't know. I mean, again, it's not like it's a new thing to talk about, you know, changing the voting age. And I'm okay with the voting age being at 18, even though I think 18-year-old voters are not the most informed voters. Sometimes they're pretty passionate voters, sometimes more so passionate than 30-year-old voters. You know, but I, I think, again, we don't live life in a vacuum, right? In this interview, the spokesperson for this parent organization, you know, the, the interviewer kind of was asking her, like, where else is this coming from, right? Like, and she was just saying, we're just parents. We're having conversations. That's it. Like, we're not connected with anything bigger. And, you know, the interviewer seemed a little frustrated because she wasn't kind of picking up on what he was asking. She seemed frustrated and kind of offended even that he would suggest that maybe their talking points are similar to other talking points in other states and other organizations or other maybe, you know, news slash entertainment news, TV channels, TV stations. And, and she seemed, you know, kind of really kind of offended that he would think that. And I'm thinking to myself, we don't live in a vacuum, right? Like, I mean, I wonder sometimes when I have a thought, if it's an original thought, because I think can't be original thoughts. Like I'm hearing, I'm taking in so much information on a daily basis, talking to people, reading things. I listen to podcasts. I listen to books. I'm bringing in so much information that me just one day driving in my car and having a thought, the likelihood of it being an independent thought that didn't come from some external influence, that just can't be, right? That The likelihood of that probably isn't high. And so I, I think, again, as we're looking at these things, because they, they tend to line up, you know, they tend to line up with mask mandates. They tend to line up with the fears, often unfounded fears about teaching critical race theory. They tend to line up around fears about, you know, sexual orientation. And, and again, you know, one of the, the issues that the Weber State professor raised is, you know, he said often these parent groups um, we'll talk about and say these these things are uh, controversial, right? And controversy doesn't belong in the schools and controversy doesn't belong in the school districts or even in the school boards. And now one of the things that can happen is in most states, this is true in Utah, it's true in a lot of states, there's 
statutories, right? Or there's statutorily parents have some rights, even though it's not like a constitutional right or a constitutional amendment that gives them their rights. But statutorily, there are some rights that parents have. So for example, in Utah, Utah has a law, I'm not exactly sure the details of it, but it allows parents to exempt their children from sex ed. Or, you know, it can be other things like that. So it can exist and it's in practice in most school districts. And this has been happening for a while now. And so if a parent says, hey, I want to exempt my child from certain things. I don't want my child having access to these things. The parent can make that known. And school libraries will, you know, put a flag on their child's account and not allow them to check out certain books and potentially even entire topics that the parent is saying, I don't want any topic about this, something that my kid can check out from the school library, right? So rather than restricting it or putting it behind a desk, they can opt in and they can say, for my child, I want this known in the school and the school will practice it. The school library will practice it, school teachers will practice it, school administrators will, will practice it. So there is that in place, right? So again, this is where it starts to look like this isn't really just about parents' right for their child because they do have that ability to make those decisions for their children, right? It seems like it's a little bit more than just what they're concerned about or pushing back on what their children are learning. And instead, it's becoming something that they don't want anything to be taught about. They don't want any children learning these things. And so we get these terms that are used like neutrality, right? Schools should be neutral places and there should be neutrality in schools and the school curriculum should be neutral. But when you step back from that, and this is the point that the Weber State professor made, is when you step back from that, neutrality actually isn't existing, right? So let's say, for example, parents are saying schools should be neutral and trans people are controversial by nature, so schools need to be neutral, and so they can't have any books about trans kids. Right now, what that means, though, because that's actually not how that's practiced, right? Schools aren't actually gender neutral, right? So parents are saying gender identity doesn't belong in the schools. And they then target these books that have trans kids in it or books about LGBTQ kids, anything besides cisgender, right? But you have a book about boys playing football or girls playing with dolls. Well, that right there is gender identity, right? But in these parents' minds, they wouldn't question those books or they wouldn't see those books about having a gender non-neutral message, right? Because they're saying boys play football and girls play with dolls. Well, my girls didn't all play with dolls, right? So again, we're, we're having non-gender neutral conversations. They're just what has already been determined by what parents, I'm not sure, right? But it's already been determined that that's fine, that that's neutral because that's the way I believe it should be because that's the way I'm comfortable with. That's the way I want my kids to be, right? This is where it starts to get messy and this is where things start to come out sideways left and right 
and start to influence institutions and public places or public spheres and making them political because I don't want to deal with my discomfort or the emotions that are telling me something different. Now, there was an interview done with a group. It was a a famous case about race in schools and it was Moms for Liberty groups outside of Nashville. And you know, that group, Moms for Liberty, had gotten a ton of press. And in one of the interviews, the mom was saying something like, she's objecting to a historical book about Ruby Bridges that presents Ruby Bridges, you know, the whole story of Ruby Bridges. She's objecting to a book about Ruby Bridges. Now let's, just for the record, right? Ruby Bridges is actually still alive. She's still alive. So when we talk about that was another lifetime ago, it it actually wasn't, right? Because it's still her lifetime. So Ruby Bridges, just as a reminder, was a six-year-old who had to be escorted every day by armed federal agents through a crowd of racist, screaming white protesters as the schools were desegregated at New Orleans, New Orleans, that's my Louisiana accent coming out, New Orleans Elementary School. So she was escorted every day by federal agents through this crowd of people screaming and yelling and protesting about her coming to school, right? And being a black child coming to a white school. And so this mom in this interview was saying that she's objecting to this book about Ruby Bridges because she thinks that elementary kids are too young to learn this. Now, my first thought about this is, well, Ruby's six. Ruby doesn't get to not learn about this, right? This is her life. This is what she's experiencing as adults. I mean, if you see the pictures, adults are yelling and screaming at her. Yeah, she's too young to be screamed at by these people. I absolutely agree. I don't think it's too young for my elementary school kids to learn about that story that happened to this little girl who was six. The beginning of elementary school. That was her lived experience. And so, you know, she's asked, the mom is asked, well, when is old enough, right? When is old enough? And she doesn't really respond. She just kind of ignores the question. And the reporter says, you know, I think she doesn't answer my question because her response is that she never wants her kids to learn that. She never wants her kids to learn that. And again, my question as I'm watching this, as I'm reading different articles, as I'm listening to different interviews, my question is, what is so scary about this? Because I don't believe it's really about white kids' feelings being heard about slavery. I don't think it's cisgender kids feeling confused about their gender identity. I don't think it's, you know, heterosexual families with mom and dad those families being threatened by parents with two dads or two moms. I don't think that's what's scary. I think what's scary is we have so many things that we haven't worked through, that we haven't faced, and that we've shoved down so far that we have little information about why the emotions are overwhelming, why the emotions feel so intense but we won't go internally and ask ourselves this question. So instead, we go external and we think, who's to blame? It's not me, it's not my family, but somebody's to blame and I'll find them and I'll point the finger at them.
At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.